0: Welcome to a recording of a La Trobe Asia seminar. I'm Nick Bisley from La Trobe Asia. Rodrigo Duterte, the maverick president of the Philippines, has had a turbulent first year in office. His crime-fighting agenda, popular with the middle class during the election, has delivered a bloody and devastating war on drugs, with crowded prisons and thousands killed in the streets. Internal conflict with Islamic State-backed groups has led to martial law on the island of Mindanao and threats of civil war. At the same time, the government is pushing ahead with bold initiatives, and he aims to fuel the economy and improve the lives of Filipinos. What can the Philippines expect in the five years left of his term of presidency? Joining me to discuss this in a live event is Dr. Nicole Curato. Nicole is an ARC Discovery Early Career Research Fellow in the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. It was recorded live in front of an audience on the 16th of August, 2017.
1: So um, I'd like to start my presentation by explaining uh, why I chose the title. Um, I understand it sounds too dark and morbid, perhaps too theatrical, and evokes images of a very angry Daniel Day-Lewis. But my choice of title is deliberate. It will be bloody was President Rodrigo Duterte's campaign promise. And more than a year ago during the campaign, he vowed to kill all drug pushers and put an end to crime and corruption in the country. At that time, I thought it was just hyperbolic language from a very colorful character. Um, but today we realize that he was actually being literal so my presentation this afternoon hopes to provide a critical assessment of president duterte's first year in office most of my insights are drawn from the forthcoming book uh, the duterte reader and this is an edited collection to be published by the ateneo de manila university press in the philippines and cornell university press uh, for overseas distribution and i hope there will be opportunities in the future to talk about this project um, in more detail in a different context Um, But today I will provide a preview of some of the ideas I put forward in the book. The cover is actually pretty interesting because um, the president's face there is composed of sentences he actually said. So if you come closer, you may be able to see a lot of words that your children shouldn't really see. So last year um, in this exact same venue, I was invited to examine President Duterte's rise to power and I argued that Duterte's win is both a product of electoral insurgency and, and inevitable rise. Um, electoral insurgency is a term um, Walden Bello uses to describe the grassroots support that underpinned Duterte's victory. And I have witnessed this myself when I conducted ethnographic fieldwork in disaster-affected communities in the Philippines, such that people who lost everything from Typhoon Haiyan, one of the strongest storms that ever made landfall, uh, were willing to sacrifice their economic recovery to contribute to Duterte's campaign. By saying this, though, I don't mean to romanticize the president's victory. His campaign very much worked within the framework of electoral politics in the Philippines, driven by campaign or big campaign donors and political machinery, which includes a systematic industry of online trolling. Um, Duterte, of course, denies this narrative. He usually says he ran a campaign on a shoestring budget, but evidence suggests otherwise. And there's a lot more to say here, um, but I'll leave that for now. But I also argue that his rise to power is an inevitable rise. Um, his win conforms to the populist reformist patterns of presidential victories that has marked post-authoritarian Philippines. So the argument here is that if you look at the pattern of all presidents in the Philippines, it usually just swings from a reformist to a populist, um, although I'm not saying that one is necessarily better than the other. We've had pretty bad reformist presidents as well. And 2016, if you follow that um, pattern, follows a populist's time. And of course there there is a lot more nuance to this argument and if you're curious to find out more, um, I recommend Mark Thompson's piece published in the Journal of Democracy to make sense of that pattern. So it has been a year. So I will update um, the story by putting forward one key observation um, that Duterte simultaneously disrupts and perpetuates the Philippines elite democracy. Um, There are two conjectures I wish to offer First is that Duterte disrupts the legacy of the EDSA people power regime while not dismantling its elite underpinnings. Secondly, I argue that Duterte's illiberal fantasies are built on the same imperfections that discredited the Philippines' liberal ideals. So let's go to the first theme, the disruption of the EDSA people power regime while not dismantling its elitist underpinnings. So the Philippines' path to democratization since the EDSA People Power Revolution in 1986 has been an uneven one. So while that revolution did restore liberal rights, elections continued to be a system for shifting clan alliances to compete for political power. And that's what I mean when I say elite democracy. Of course, I recognize that most democracies in the world are run by the elites. But the elite character of democracy in the Philippines takes shape through an electoral system that that are defined not by party politics, ideology, ethnicity, religion, or or other categories that usually divide the political. Instead, in the Philippines case, it is shifting clan alliances, sometimes in the form of fictive kinship that define competition for power. So this is a photograph I took um, during um, the field work in Tacloban, um, the the hometown of Imelda Marcos, the wife of the deposed Ferdinand Marcos. And I took this photo um, last April, um, last year, at the height of the campaign season. And here you see a classic situation of how um, elite politics in the Philippines is organized. This is Cristina Romualdez. She's running for mayor because her husband, Alfred Romualdez has reached his maximum term of three terms. Therefore, the wife will take his place and she won. Uh, this is Yeda Romualdez. She ran and won for Congress because her husband, Martin Romualdez, is also term, his term is also maximized. So he ran for Senate and he lost. And then their cousin, um, Bong Bong Marcos, it's the Philippines, there has to be bell names. Uh, Bong Bong Marcos, though the son of the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, their cousin ran for vice president. He lost by a hairline. And um, I mentioned kick, uh, fictive kinship. Um, this is running as a party list group Tingog uh, Sinirangan who is really a friend of the Romualdises. So why am I saying this? Because it's a good summary of the um, electoral system in the Philippines. You have a horizontal dynasty, meaning in local government you have relatives who are running as mayor and congressman but you also have a vertical dynasty, meaning you have people in local government who have a link potentially in the national government with a vice president and a senator. Um, But mercifully, they both lost. And this is me revealing my politics, of course, because I think we should be transparent about our politics. Um, Okay, so what I'm saying is this is not atypical, and this is the kind of democracy that the 1986 revolution restored. um, From concentration of power to a dictator to becoming a free-for-all competition for um, elites coming from similar families, of course, except for some notable exceptions, and I have to emphasize that. I raise this issue because I argue that Duterte's electoral victory did not disrupt this kind of regime. If anything, Duterte himself has his own dynasty in Davao. So his daughter Sara, the one in blue, replaced him as Davao mayor, of course not the little child, (laughs) the 12-year-old girl, Um, replaced him as Davao mayor while his son Paolo, um, the one to the rightmost, is the vice mayor. So the disruption I'm talking about here is not the disruption of that kind of elite politics but it's the brazen disregard for the idealized narrative of the Edsa regime. He's the first post-authoritarian president that talks about declaring martial law. And in fact, he did in the entire island of Mindanao because of the Marawi crisis, which I will discuss more later. While most politicians would try to boost their people power credentials, Duterte actively sought to redefine the victors of the revolution and renegotiate its centrality to the national memory. And this is manifest in many things. For example, he snubbed the annual commemoration of the people power revolution, something that a lot of people would want to be part of to boost their political credentials. Or fulfilling his campaign promise of allowing the burial of the deposed dictator Marcos in the hero cemetery, and declaring the dictator Ferdinand Marcos as one of the best presidents of the country. So here is an image of the controversial Marcos burial which occurred last November and yes, that is Imelda Marcos in black. And of course, there is a corresponding protest action that rejected this move by the president. So this is one of the, mer- uh, one of the most major protests, first major protests against President Duterte uh, last November. I think it is moving because it is moved by millennials who did not experience martial law which actually supports survey data that show that it is actually the people who live through martial law, the older generations, that have an authoritarian nostalgia. So here in this image, you see a banner that says, the nation paid for Aimee Marcos's Botox, um, currently the governor of Ilocos and Marcos's daughter. Uh, the nation paid for Sandro's education at the London School of Economics. Sandro um, is the grandson of the dictator. Why does this matter? Because I think this is a way of the millennials translating the intergenerational injustice that the martial law has, that martial law has brought about it makes an appeal to intergenerational justice that young people continue to play to pay for the debts incurred by the Marcos regime which they use to enrich themselves all right what about economic policy um, a key part of the edsa system is its export orientation reliance on foreign investments and crony capitalism which is a very different set of policies compared to a lot of philippines neighbors when you look at malaysia or thailand right so did Duterte change the elitist economic policy underpinning the EDSA system? Well, not really. Um, Duterte is a self-identified socialist. He expressed admiration for the Communist Party of the Philippines founder, Jose Maria Sison and gave cabinet posts to the nominees of the Communist Party, um, including the Department of Social Welfare, the Department of Agrarian Reform, and the Anti-Poverty Commission. He even forged a peace process with communist rebels, um, which is the image that you see there which was off to a very promising start but ended up being stalled and we can talk about this later if if you wish. At the same time, while he did give concessions to some members of the left being part of his cabinet, which is pretty phenomenal, um, his cabinet or his economic team does not show indications of departing from previous regimes' macroeconomic policies. So, what I'm saying is, in spite of Duterte's nationalist rhetoric, his economic ministers have shown no intention, for example, of nationalizing strategic industries or redistributing lands to small farmers. So even if he's a self-declared socialist, it's not really translated into the policy. Um, Duterte is also supportive of of removing um, economic provisions, restrictive economic provisions in the constitution to attract foreign direct investments. Um, Duterte-nomics, as his economic ministers envision, is driven by large infrastructure spending, 5% of the GDP, to usher in the Philippines' age of golden infrastructure. And they call this policy, very creatively, build, build, build. So in this picture are big-ticket projects of the Duterte regime. But the question always is, when you have these big-ticket projects, how are they funded? I don't have time to go in depth, but I'd like to point you to this website by the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism, or PCIJ. And this article basically breaks down these big-ticket projects. And the article raises critical questions, and I'm quoting extensively from the article here. So we are witnessing the biggest surge of infrastructure spending in the country since the Marcoses' uh, debt-driven spending spree in the 1970s. But the problem is we know very little about these deals. For example, who are the Filipino parties to these deals and how did they build their wealth? How did they manage to secure these deals? Because from what we know about their, tra- or from what we know about their track record, can we trust them to deliver? The questions, and I'm still quoting here, have been very difficult to answer because we know startlingly little about these firms. Many do not have a substantive um, public profile, neither have they disclosed anything publicly about their ownership, management, or their past deals. So I leave you to infer what these deals actually mean. So what is the argument here as far as economic policy is concerned? I argue that instead of dismantling elite structures that define the elitist regime post-EDSA, Duterte put together uh, what Julio Tihanki also in the Duterte Reader, refers to as, a, as an insurgent counter-elite coalition. So basically, these are the coalitions of elites who were pushed out by previous administrations who were averse um, to the EDSA regime. Um, the counter-elite is also composed of non-Manila business elites and former Marcos cronies. So in summary, um, Duterte's rise to power is a disruption of the EDSA regime but it is also important to qualify which part of the system it has changed. And I argue that it is marked not by dismantling exclusionary political and economic structures, but by the formation of a counter-elite that has been marginalized in the Edsa regime. So let me now turn to the second theme, the illiberal fantasies. When people ask me to summarize the first year of the Duterte regime, I always say it's a regime that's at war, and the nation has been at war in two fronts. Um, the next photos are graphic images, so consider this as warning. Um, so the first war happens in the streets of Manila, the bloody war on drugs. So in the first month of the Duterte, first six months of the Duterte presidency, the Philippine National Police reported that they have arrested over 44,000 drug suspects, knocked on doors of over six million households, made over a million drug users surrender, and seized over $74 million worth of illegal drugs. Casualties, according to the police, of drug-related operations hit more than 2,000 people in the first six months, although human rights groups and journalists estimate up to 6,000 deaths. So that leaves us over 1,000 people killed in each month of Duterte's term. So indeed, the president was both serious and literal when he declared that his regime will be bloody. But those are the data in the first six months. What about for the first year? Like many, I've lost count. Journalists have been documenting cases of unreported deaths, like police officers colluding with morgues to cover their tracks. So the simple answer is we don't know the accurate death count anymore beyond the numbers offered by the police. So how do we make sense of the killings? The argument I make here is that the Philippines' bloody war on drugs hinges on an illiberal fantasy. It is illiberal in the sense that human rights are viewed as particular, not universal. And no less than the Justice Secretary considered criminals, drug, lor- drug lords, drug pushers as not part of the humanity. Those are the words of our Justice Secretary. Presidential spokespersons invoke the language of Asian values and national sovereignty to justify carnage as part of cleaning up society. I think I almost had a meltdown last week when I read the draft um, constitution because they're, they want to change the constitution to shift to a federal form of government. And the draft basically replaces the phrase, we want to be a just and humane society, to we want to be a more perfect society. And of course, the grammar is atrocious, but what does it evoke, right? A perfect society. And if you relate that to previous statements, if we want to clean up society, it's very Auschwitz y, which is obviously very disturbing. However, um, of course, as a sociologist, I think it's better to understand the context of the killings and important, and the importance of locating Duterte's war to broader patterns of state-sponsored violence in the Philippines. Because we also have to, re- to realize that the spate of killings in the Philippines is not unique to the Duterte regime. The major difference is the scale. Over the past decades, there have been numerous summary executions of human rights defenders, indigenous rights leaders, Uh, land reform advocates, left-wing advocates, and journalists. Um, Sheila Coronel argues in the Duterte Reader that the bloody purge of drug offenders was possible because the police was a ready, willing, and able killing machine. It is not surprising that the modes of killing employed in the anti-drug campaign, such as shooting by hooded gunmen riding on motorcycles, or strangulation by cords or wires, are actually reminiscent of the executions of the past. Alfred McCoy actually makes an argument that America's torture strategies use the Philippines as laboratory for these, um, for these violent acts. So the argument is that the drug war exposes how the police force adapts to a new policy regime as well as the, res- the resilience of the institution's um, bad habits. So another graphic warning ahead. So the argument here that Sheila Coronel puts forward is that the drug war actually just opened new opportunities for entrepreneurial policemen to make profits, whether through extortion rackets or securing financial rewards after drug users have been killed. The argument is far from being passive followers, police officers are actually active entrepreneurs who are on the lookout for money making opportunities. They are personalities who continually weigh the shifting balance of incentives and risks as they seek to deter crime, advance their careers, please their political patrons, and make money while also um, avoiding exposure and uh, and protection. Moreover, maybe you will ask, why do they just not file cases? Why do they just not collect evidence, Um, collect eyewitness testimonies? Well, we also have to understand the institutional pressures of the police force. If you are a police officer under pressure to report the progress of the drug war in your own locales, then you have very little choice but to resort to morally and legally questionable workarounds. So the reality is that illegal behavior is embedded with the way the police force operates. So the issue really places the the idea of accountability at the center of this illiberal fantasy. And I argue that if the police force is not cleaned up, if it just continues working with that same paradigm of police officers acting as entrepreneurial actors, then Duterte's illiberal fantasy is hinged on the very same flaws of the liberal democracy that was not able to deliver justice, right? So, okay, but how does the public react to the bloody war? Um, the data is mixed. In the survey conducted by the social weather station six months into Duterte's presidency, majority of Filipinos registered satisfaction with a campaign against illegal drugs. 53% are very satisfied. 32% were somewhat satisfied. 80% also agree with this statement. From the time Roddy Duterte became president, there, was a, there has been a decrease in the drug problem in my area. So 80% said yes. So to a certain extent, this confirms the police's report about the drop in crime rate by 32% since Duterte became president. Murder, however, is up by 50%. However, um, so the argument here is okay, there is a support, public support for the bloody war on drugs. However, data is more mixed if we interpret this in conjunction with another survey by the same firm. Because data suggests that 90% or 94% of respondents think that it is important to keep suspects alive, which is I guess an indication of the rejection of the killings. 78% are worried that some from their families will be a victim of extrajudicial killings. 69% also think that the problem of killings is a serious issue. And here is a photo of a Roman Catholic church serving as the site of resistance against the drug war, using religious rituals to bring public attention um, to injustice. So what do these stories tell? What do these numbers tell? Well, one can only make cautious inferences. One possibility is that while the public supports serious efforts to put an end to drug-related crimes, the public is averse to its illiberal character. It is possible that the public still maintains the liberal aspiration of reforming the justice system, instead of getting content with summary executions as central part of the anti-drug campaign. Some argue, including the government, that human rights is a distant ideal, that it's a Western imposition that means little to impoverished Filipinos. However, if one were to listen to the pleas of drug suspects' widows who demand to be treated with dignity, or the aspirations of residents in slum communities to be treated like human beings, to not slaughter them like animals, then I think these claims lie right at the heart of human rights, only that they are articulated differently. Um, so, in summary, while this particular war has been the subject of intense criticism of international community, it somehow gains traction because it offers a compelling fantasy, a vision of a national, of a vision of national development where fighting criminality is a prerequisite for prosperity. And you can sense this with all the speeches of Duterte and his men. For them, the issue. The the telos of politics is drugs. And if we fight drugs, we fight everything. That's basically the overarching framework. But of course, we have to ask the question, who benefits from this illiberal fantasy? How are they created, contested, and sustained, right? Who benefits from it? I leave that question hanging because there's another war that we have to talk about, and that is the war in the South, the war in Marawi. So, This is just a very basic um, description of what happened. So the Islamic city of Marawi is located in Southern Philippines. Um, The sequence of events that led to this war are complex and have been contested, but the official version of the story is this. Um, Clashes erupted when the Philippine army attempted and was unsuccessful in capturing Isnilon Hapilon. He's the former leader of the Abu Sayyaf group Um, Abu Sayyaf is declared a terrorist group and has been operating in the southernmost part of the country. International media usually refers to them as a bandit, kidnapped for ransom, or in Philippine discourse, KFR because we love TLAs, right? KFR groups, Um, so essentially a bandit slash ragtag army of um, terrorists claiming um, claiming to be religious. Uh, this is different from the Mora Islamic Liberation Front and other movements that have been engaging with peace talks with government, so more on that later. So Hapilon is reported to be the emir of the Islamic State Caliphate in Southeast Asia. And after a botched capture of Hapilon in Marawi, militants loyal to him stormed the streets of Marawi, which was unexpected just because of its sheer force. So they took over uh, schools, hospitals, and other public buildings. They hoisted ISIS flags. Duterte ordered airstrikes, asked the marines to engage in urban warfare, something that the marines are not trained to do because they're trained to fight in the jungles. So today, the death toll near 700, based on the numbers of the armed forces. The displaced are over 350,000 people. This war has been going on for three months now. So Duterte declared martial law in Mindanao. The Congress approved its extension until the end of the year. But what does martial law do, if you, ask, if you may ask? What does it do considering the Philippines already has laws like the Human Security Act that provides more leeway for the state to act um, when there is terrorism? So what does martial law do? Well, according to the Solicitor General of the Philippines, what the martial law provides is an exclamation point. Um, he argues that martial law adds actually no legal powers except that it has an exclamation point and it is meant to make terrorists listen. Um, I'll go back to that later, but basically if you ask Duterte on the other hand, what does martial law do, he just says, well basically the military is in charge. Um, I'm not very confident to talk about the geopolitical implications of this war to the region, um, but there are a couple of reflections I'd like to put forward um, this afternoon as a way of closing this discussion. Uh, First has to do with the war's legacy. In a security briefing I attended, the most resonant explanation that has been put forward has to do with identity. When we talked about the likely recruits of terror groups um, in the islands in the southern part of the Philippines like Basilan and Holo, usually the profile is this. They are young, poor men with low education. They are usually orphaned children of fighters. They personally suffered loss of family members due to combat. But that is in the southernmost part of the country. If we look at mainland Mindanao where Marawi is, the likely recruits in the urban centers have this profile. They are usually college graduates. They usually have higher level um, education in the madrasa. They are young, idealistic, and have leadership potential. And they belong to middle class families. The data is um, based on Asia Foundation study in the Philippines. So there is something about the notion of cool jihad um, that the Maute brothers, those who launched this attack, the men who led the capture of Marawi, are the cool fighters. They are to be admired because they, are made, they made the Philippines strongman who promised to bring peace in the south and they made him look bad. Which makes me think, what can peace talks actually do if this is now the face of terror? The picture, this picture is supposed to evoke hope. Um, some men in this picture are former freedom fighters who presented the Bangsamoro Bang Basic Law to the president, which is for some being used as a panacea to bring peace in the south. Um, there are of course a lot of new ones and hard work that went into crafting this bill so i don't mean to devalue it at all uh, the main aim of the bill is to create a new region for the Bangsamoro, which is the collective term for filipino muslims but these freedom fighters who are now on the table to talk peace maybe are not cool enough for younger recruits they are old sellouts so to speak they are conservative look they're in manila in the presidential palace shaking hands with the president right? But look at the Maute brothers, the cool jihadis offering an alternative. The bold ones who even had a video, this is a screen grab of that video, showing how they plan to take over a Philippine city. So where will peace talks take us? And where will the Duterte's all-out war take us? What exactly does it address if the issue of recruiting terrorists is identity? My second reflection has to do um, with martial law, and I guess I apologize. Um, in advance for those who have very strong political views in the Philippines. Um, this is obviously Senator Manny Pacquiao, so thank you to Australia's Hatton for beating him in the last boxing. Um, well, one of the lessons I, I learned here has to be with our checks and balances. I regret spending a beautiful Saturday afternoon listening to the Philippines Congress interrogating the president's representatives about their reasons for requesting for martial law extension. Why? because only a few asked hard questions. What I saw that day was a rubber stamp Congress that was not willing to flex their muscles against a, f- a very popular president. So this is our favorite senator, Manny Pacquiao, also from Mindanao, from Mindanao who was m- making quotes on Bible verses on how the war is justified. Also worrying is the imposition of martial law without a strong commission on human rights. Um, the psychological effect of martial law to the nation is that it invokes memories of Uh, military abuses during the Marcos regime. The Speaker of the Philippine Congress threatens to allocate zero budget to the Commission on Human Rights, and this is clearly a cause of alarm. Which relates to my final point about Marawi and martial law. One senator asked the President's representative what the end point looks like, and I think it's one of the more intelligent conversations in that discussion. Um, At that point, I already had three rounds of whiskey because the answers were really scary. Someone said, we need martial law for rebuilding Marawi and to fight communist insurgents and to fight terrorism. It's a blanket reasoning why we have to extend martial law. And it's scary for me because it looks like imposing martial law is not a means to an end, but the end game itself. But of course, um, I'd like to conclude my comments on a hopeful note. Um, Throughout my presentation, I placed emphasis on Duterte's regime both being a disruption of the edge system and a continuation of the structural weaknesses of Philippine democracy. But I would be remiss not to emphasize that there are aspects of Philippine democracy that also have a strong culture of standing up against power. There is no credible opposition now against Duterte, and I think that's for the best, if that means the opposition will once again be another counter-elite. But what I am observing in my own research, in my own encounters with communities that have witnessed the spate of killings in Manila, is that resistance, opposition, and demands for due process are taking a foothold in pockets whether it's in the church, the millennials, the Philippines creative class, or charities quietly helping to bury the dead bodies of victims of the drug war. And I suppose that's the good thing about fantasies, that they can be easily punctured. So I'll end my comments there.
0: Thanks, Nicole. I I promised I'd say a few quick things about the Philippines in the world under Duterte, and I'll keep my comments brief because I think um, Nicole's painted a very rich picture um, of the domestic. Uh, circumstances in the Philippines. And I'm sure we sort of want to pick apart some of that. But I, I think um, really three things to say about um, 12 months of, of the Duterte administration um, from an international point of view. Prior to, to his election and his inauguration, the Philippines had a pretty predictable, dull, and, and kind of not especially visible presence in the region. It was a solid stalwart of ASEAN. It was a junior partner, a junior and very dependent partner of the United States. Um, and in the uh, arbitral tribunal decision against China, it had sort of kind of st- taken a sort of um, step, step out from the group to challenge the legitimacy and legality of what China had been doing. Um, so in that respect, perhaps saying they were predictable is a little bit mean, uh, but in terms of the longer, longer trajectory of Philippines foreign policy, there was a clear pattern there. Um, since uh, Duterte coming to office, things have changed dramatically. The Philippines is no longer predictable, and that's that's probably true. Full stop. With Duterte, generally, um, it is the, the extent to which the you know the, the, the Philippines wants to consider itself a junior ally or a junior independent ally of the United States. I think is very much up for debate. Um, the Philippines matters a great deal more, and if you wanted to. Um, I think perhaps this may be attributing uh, greater strategic sort of intent and forethought on the administration, but certainly as a small country in a region in which great power rivalry is becoming increasingly an important part of how the region's international relations unfold, being unpredictable and being a kind of swing player increases your relative value in the system. So you could make the case if you wanted that Duterte's... um, distancing from the United States and flirtations with China is part of a sort of effort to, to increase um, the relative value of the Philippines. You know, think a little bit, a kind of parallel as the kinds of countries during the Cold War who tried to play off the Soviets and the Americans for mutual advantage. That could be some kind of uh, game that the Philippines is playing. But as you probably gather from my intonations, I think that's um, a consequence, not a, a, a clearly forethought plan. I don't think Duterte is a Kissinger Um, of of the South China Sea. But there we go. What has been the sort of formal statements around uh, Philippines foreign policy from uh, the Duterte administration? There's sort of been three things, three messages that they have tried to send. um, And I would emphasize tried to send about their foreign policy. But the sort of, if you were writing the essay about what the official line is, these are the three things you'd point to. One is the line that that the uh, Philippines wants to increase its separation from Washington, and the emphasis is on separation. So increasing distance from Washington, not ending the alliance, not severing links, not establishing a truly independent neutral policy or anything along those lines, but giving um, Manila much greater distance from Washington. That's the official line about what they're trying to achieve. Uh, The second component is significant improvement in its relations with China. So, you know, if, and again, to think in, in kind of very basic terms, moving a little bit out of Washington's orbit and a little bit more into China's orbit. But it isn't changing one alliance master for the other. Um, but it's about improving relations with, and it's about reflecting the broader shift in, in the region's geopolitics as American power declines and Chinese power increases. Um, and the third official line, um, or the third dimension of the official line is improvement of relations with what you might describe as the kind of non-traditional partners of the Philippines. Um, so this is about developing relationships with emerging powers like India. Um, I never quite know how to describe Russia. Is it an emerging power? Not really, re-emerging, declining, kind of, it's, it's hard, hard to figure out. But certainly a significant power with whom the Philippines has not traditionally had much to do. And there was some interesting optics with the, the Putin um, uh, Duterte. Uh, Meeting um, recently. So there's, and and, you know, there's the kind of meeting of minds of crypto authoritarians that they may be swapping notes on on information warfare and the like. Um, And of course, add to that is also Japan. So it's not just the emerging non US allies, but there's relationships with Japan. Um, So that's the kind of official story. uh, So that you're seeing essentially an attempt by the Philippines, I think under Duterte formally to try to establish a kind of more independent policy for the Philippines, carve out some more space, give itself more room for maneuver to take either advantage of rivalry between the US and China, or at least to reduce its risks and increase its opportunities. The problem I think is that, whilst that makes for a nice speech and a good essay, the reality of Philippines foreign policy in practice has been rather more lumpy than that you know, three dot points. Um, and that's partly because of Duterte's style and the things that he does, and it's and it's uh, a, a, it's a kind of political, you know, a, 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 a kind of political persona that he has um, in both the domestic and the international. There's no difference, and again, it's not dissimilar to Trump, where um, there is a political f- persona that, that exists, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about um, a, 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 you know the Charlottesburg KKK march, or whether you're talking about North Korea. There's an instinct. Um, that comes from the leader in which what is said by the leader is often at some removed from what official policy is and we then turn after the tweet or the, the comment we turn to the presidential spokesperson to kind of go did he really mean it and then is the legislation going to follow and we come to and there was that line from the I think the sort of discount three-fifths of what Duterte says and, and believe about two-fifths but we will clarify it and over time we will eventually figure out what he actually means and I think that has caused considerable challenges to international partners trying to figure out where you stand with Duterte. Um, I think Australia has tried to, you know, Australia sees in Duterte um, a, a, a country that with which the current government doesn't know what to do, I think. Because on the one hand they see in the Philippines a country that Australia really should be developing a strong relationship, particularly as in the long run that shifting balance of power means a country like Australia is going to need to develop relationships with countries like the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, and others that are different from what we've had before. But in Duterte, you have a political leader with which a, a government that has put the international rule of law um, and a liberal regional order, at, the, at rhetorically at least, at the center of its foreign policy. You're not quite sure what you do with a guy like Duterte. Um, and I guess the final point I'd make has been perhaps the most important part of, of uh, his term in office so far from an international point of view is the chairmanship of, of ASEAN. So it just happened to be that the Philippines uh, was in the chair at this 50th anniversary. Um, they, could, they certainly didn't script that one right in the ASEAN Secretariat uh, because you know, historically, ASEAN had been a uh, sorry. Historically, the Philippines had been a strong advocate for and supporter of ASEAN. Big believers in ASEAN centrality. You know that ASEAN was the cornerstone of of the Philippines' international engagement. Um, Duterte has very little interest in ASEAN itself for a whole bunch of reasons. Some of which are probably perfectly reasonable and understandable. They're, they're, it's a, it's a lot of process and a lot of dullness and a lot of investment for not a lot of return. Um, it is reported that you know he said kind of what is that what does asean get us what do we get from asean and by get we mean things like infrastructure investment and the sorts of things that that's coming from china asean does not do that so why should i pay attention to this uh, but having the philippines as chair of asean when the philippines is plainly tilting towards china in which under duterte there's been a clear shift away from the arbitral tribunal decision and the desire to establish a kind of modus vivendi with the with China about the South China Sea and there was an announcement very recently that um, a, de- a kind of deal had been struck where the Chinese would basically not go any further in return for which there'd be some joint drilling and um, for, for oil and gas. Um, and w- not going any further means not doing anything with Scarborough Shoal and allowing Philippines fishing vessels access to, to the fishing grounds. Um, so. The, the short message is you know, the Philippines has changed dramatically from an international point of view under Duterte. How much of it is, is careful design and intent and how much of it is ad hoc responsiveness, we have to wait and see. Um, but I think it does underline the extent to which, um, from an international point of view, the changing leadership really, really matters and that sense of fluidity that Asia's got, not just amongst the great powers with the declining US and the rising China, but the second tier powers are all shifting and what, that, what happens inside those countries really matters to what goes on outside, even in a country that you would ordinarily go, it's poor, it's weak, it doesn't really matter at the international level, which is kind of what you would normally think about a country like the Philippines. When you bring someone like Duterte to the table, it matters in this circumstance. All right, I said I'd talk for five minutes, I talked for about 10, which is academically very concise of me. So.